Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist.
All right, well, today we are beginning our new series. We're calling it Epic, the story of God. We're looking at the big story in the Bible. And I'm a big story guy, so I get into this kind of a series. I, of course, I like diving into the Bible. I like getting down into each passage. You know, each word of the Bible is important and significant. But I've said before that sometimes we can, we can miss the forest amidst all the trees. We can do Bible study and we can try to get all the little details, but sometimes we miss the big picture. What is God doing? What is this story all about? And so for the next eight weeks, that's what we're going to dive into. What is the story of God all about? And last week, Dean set a really high bar for me. I had, after the service, I, I literally had people running up to me saying, how are you going to top that? And uh, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I don't know. How do you top throwing out Starburst and hitting poor Jerry Nelson in the head? I mean, I just, you, 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 can't, you can't top that. And so I was, I was wrestling with that this week, and I thought, well, maybe I should buy a gigantic fan and hang it up. And so I, I did... I did that, but I just felt like it wasn't quite enough, so I, I came up with this video here, uh, and as I was sitting in my office this week, working on my message, thinking it through, thinking how to top Dean, as that's always my goal, um, <laughs> uh, as I was doing that, Pastor Ron Graff came in, and he brought this book, and he said, hey, hey, uh, I know that, Dave, I know you're really into, um, into history, like me, and he said, this is the autobiography of a president that I really like. I was like, wow, Ron, thanks for the autobiography, man. That's, that's awesome. And so I, my mind is preoccupied, but I start flipping through this, this book a little bit. And as I'm flipping through it, it kind of does draw me in a little bit. I'm not a huge autobiography guy, but it does kind of pull me in. And I begin to think, how do you evaluate a president? How do you know whether somebody was a good president or not? I mean, put aside partisan politics. Uh, that, that aside, how do you know if they were a good president? And I thought, well, can you look at their debates when they're a candidate? We just had some debates about, about a week and a half ago. And I thought, no, I, you definitely can't figure out from debates whether somebody is going to be a good president, whether they were a good president. Debates, really, you can't win a debate. You can only lose a debate. You just want to kind of keep it, keep from saying anything bad. And, and you're really, you're just trying to get, give the answers that people want to hear. So I thought, no, debates don't do the trick. I thought, well, can you look at their policies while they're in office? So, of course, we evaluate pre Obama's policies and some of you don't like his policies, and we, we look at that. But I think even then, we really can't get a good picture of a president because our, our, our scope, our view is so limited. We just see the short term. We don't really see how these policies are going to work out in the long term, and we don't really know what's going behind the scenes. We don't know what their motivations are completely. We don't know the kind of information that they're getting from their advisors, and so we just have a very limited picture. And so really, the only way that you can evaluate a president is by reading biographies about the president. That's what historians will tell you. You really have to wait 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That's a long time, but to begin to see these policies flesh out and to begin to, to hear from people who were close to that president. They, their advisors begin to, to write about them and, and people in their cabinet are interviewed and, and, you, and the presidents themselves write their autobiographies and you begin to get a behind the scenes look at this president. You begin to see what was influencing him. You, you begin to really understand what were his goals. And, and you, you're, you're seeing his values. Were his goals good? And then did he achieve his goals? Were, was he able to work together with people and, and achieve those goals? And it's really only later by reading his biography. And I thought, in some ways, that's similar to God. Now stay with me here, because I, I know that's hard, kind of a tough jump. But with God, people love to debate the existence of God. 
And they love to just kind of out of their own abstract imagination say, I think God's kind of like this. And actually this week I was at the chiropractor and two people were arguing very vigorously. And I kind of overheard that they were arguing about God. And it was one of them clearly wasn't a, a Christian. And so that but but that person believed in God. And so it's just kind of like, I think God is like this. And I just don't think there's much value in those kind of debates. Just kind of out of the top of your head. Well, I like, I like puppies, so I think God is probably kind of like a puppy. I mean, it's just like, it's just kind of out of your own imagination, people do that. And so I, d- I don't think there's a lot of value in debates. Um, some people will try to look at God's current policies. And by that I mean they look at nature. They look at our, ex- our experience of the world right now. And I think there is some value to that. We look at nature and we see its beauty, we see its order, its structure, and we think whoever created this universe, whatever the cause of the universe was, must have been incredibly powerful, incredibly intelligent. We see beauty and goodness, and so we think whatever this cause was must have, must have cared about beauty, we think, and, 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 and must have cared about goodness. But at the same time, we have a very small perspective. We're very finite, and we see a lot of suffering and a lot of evil, and a lot of problems, and so that's confusing to us, and we think, well, what is God like as we look at nature, and as we look at our world, and and our our perspective is so small, and so really the only way to get a good perspective of God, to really understand God, is to read his biography, to read the book that gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the creator and the ruler of the universe. The Bible is God's biography. It's all about his rule of this earth. It doesn't tell us everything about God, every little detail. That would be impossible. But it gives us key information about God that is crucially important to us. It tells us about God's key interventions in human history. It reveals God's goals and his values and his methods. What are God's goals? What is, what is he working towards? And what are his values? Why, why does he value those goals? And what are his methods? How is he going to bring those goals about? And that kind of information is crucially important for us because if God is our creator and our king, then it's in our best interest to know all about him, all about him. Some people say to me, look, even if God exists, it's irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter if he exists. And I say to them, I think the opposite is true. If God exists, it is incredibly important. It's the most important thing to you because it means there is a being who designed you. He knows how you ought to function. And that being is sovereign over the world. That means everything that happens to you is somehow filtered through his will. And so it's incredibly practical to know about this being. Nothing matters more than him. Nothing matters more than seeking to know him and to be rightly related to him. That should become the purpose of our lives. And when that becomes our purpose, then the Bible is indispensable. Indispensable. Because it's the primary means by which we know God. It's not like Aesop's fables. It's not a bunch of moralistic stories that teach us how to be good, nor is it a science book that tells us kind of this engineering manual on how God made the universe. It's a biography. It's the self-disclosure of the most powerful, most intelligent, most important being in the universe. And so today we're going to start the story. We're going to dive in at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, 
and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be, vault, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals which according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
and there was evening, and there was the morning, the sixth day. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. Three observations from these passages. First, in the beginning, God. That's the first observation. In the beginning, God. These, the first four words of God's story set it apart from all other stories. It makes it completely different. In the ancient world, creation stories often involved multiple gods, and they always involved pre-existing matter. So you have multiple gods, and they're fighting it out, and they'll take some pre-existing matter, and they'll make stuff. They found it somewhere, and they start to make things. And usually, these ancient creation stories were very immoral. So Zeus, in his story, he kills his dad, and he uses his dad's body to make the planets. And uh, in the Babylonian story, Marduk... It's a pretty awesome name. Marduk, this god, he kills his mom. He cuts her in half. He uses half her body to make the sky and the other half to make the land. So there's some pretty, pretty funky stuff going on in those old stories. But even the new stories are a little bit odd. Uh, if you look at the atheistic scientific accounts of, of the universe, most stories used to say that matter is, is eternal. It lasts forever. And as that has become more difficult, as you see in the video, some people just say, well, the universe just popped into existence. And then other people say, well, no, 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 there's a multiverse. But then we've shown that the multiverse would have had to start at some point. So they say, well, that popped into existence. So there's some pretty crazy stories out there. But the Bible begins with God and only God. He is the first cause of everything. He existed before anything else and he is uncaused. Nothing made God. He is ultimate reality. He is the foundation. He's the first domino in the chain of cause and effect. And he's timeless and eternal. He exists timelessly before creation. That's hard to imagine. How can somebody be timeless? So imagine it like this. Think of of your most perfect moments in your life. Think of a moment in your life that if you could freeze time, if you could stop time, you would, and you would just live in that moment. For me, I think it would be something like a moment when all my family's together on the couch, my wife and I are sitting there, and my kids come over, and they jump on us, and so I start to tickle them, and then my wife, you know, taking pictures of us. It's just this incredibly happy moment, and I would just, if I could, I would just freeze it right there. 
And I know, yeah, I want my kids to grow up and all that, but in that moment, I don't. I just want them to be innocent and little forever, and I just want to enjoy them. I just want to stop time. And if I could just be timeless and just live in that moment forever, I would. One moment. What's your moment? Because I think it gives us just a tiny glimpse of the incredible, joyful, uh, almost incomprehensible, timeless moment that God had before the creation of the world. It was this perfect moment, timeless. But God is a person. And so in that moment, he chooses then to create, to essentially leave that timelessness, leave the perfection of that moment, and to create a world and have a new relationship, enter into a new relationship with his creation. And so God chose to create, and he created everything that exists, but he didn't need pre-existing stuff, right? He didn't need to kill somebody's mom to make the sky and the earth. He, he made it from nothing, nothing. Now, how in the world can God make something from nothing? That's, that's a mystery. We're in the realm of mystery here. But here's a, a metaphor that has helped me. And if you don't find this helpful, throw it aside because this isn't straight out of the Bible. This is just my own thoughts. But one metaphor that has helped me in thinking, how can God create something from nothing, is the metaphor of imagination. When you imagine a scenario, when you imagine a world, when you imagine characters, you're essentially creating something from nothing. So when J.R. Tolkien dreams, imagines up Middle Earth and and hobbits and elves and all that stuff, and he writes the story, The Lord of the Rings, he has created a world from nothing. And when my son, who's, who's seven years old and he's really into imaginary play, when he develops this world with different countries and, and battles are going on across our yard and he leaves his Legos all over the place, but it's because he has this imaginary uh, plot going on and he's been doing this for, for months. He doesn't play it all the time, but he comes back to it periodically and these armies and people and there's plot lines within the story. He's essentially creating a world from nothing through his imagination. Now, you would say, well... Okay, but that's not real, and I would grant that. It's not a real world. It doesn't exist independently of my son. But I think God's imagination is powerful enough, intelligent enough, to create a real world full of real characters with free will. And the first thing God created was the heavens and the earth. And that's basically the Hebrew way of saying God created the universe. So the earth is obviously the earth. The heavens are everything in the sky. And the Hebrews, they didn't have satellites, so they didn't know how big the universe was. But they basically said everything in the sky, and the earth included, God made it. That's his first act. And so the whole universe, what, 13.5 billion light years across, and all the galaxies, and everything, God made it, his first act. But then verse 2, the perspective narrows drastically, and it says the earth was formless and empty. And so the perspective goes from this huge universe down to this tiny little rock floating in space. And God, God focuses on that little rock and he begins to form it and mold it. Verse 3 says God, God causes light. God says let there be light. And so light begins to penetrate the gas layer surrounding this earth. And as the, the atmosphere becomes translucent, the, the gases change and evaporation happens. And so in verse 6, a cloud layer forms between the sky and the earth, and you have this open space in between. And the clouds begin to produce rain, and so in verse 9, the oceans and the dry land appear. And then in verse 11, vegetation grows. And then in verse 14, the cloud cover begins to dissipate, and you can see the sun and the moon and the stars, they become visible. And then in verse 20, water animals and birds are created. In verse 24, land animals are created. Verse 26, humans are created in the image of God. In verse 31, God says, man, this is an awesome intro. 
I'm doing a really good job writing this story. This is a great intro to my story. And so I'm going to pause here now at the end of my first point, and I want to allow a member of our congregation, Bob Jampoli, to come up, and he's going to share just very briefly how God's story, this intro to God's story, has helped to shape his own story. So Dave invited me to speak, so I assumed he labeled me as a nerdy space cadet. I own that. (laughs) But uh, my story begins, it's really three parts, my childhood and then my early adult years and then after I met Alicia and got married. So when I was a child, I was raised in a Christian home and I was taught to love God and go to church and be good and read the Bible and pray to God and all those were good things. But growing up in a Catholic church, there wasn't a huge emphasis on studying God's word. It was more about just how I lived my life and things like that. So then when I became a young adult and I went to school for engineering and got involved in space, I was always interested in math and science, so I became an engineer and ended up in the aerospace industry and have had a great career and did some really cool stuff. I worked on spacecraft that explored the planets of our solar system, and I was the chief engineer for a space telescope that's being built that's designed to take pictures of the very first stars that are ever made at the beginning of the universe to try to understand the beginning of the universe. So I started to try to reconcile my Christian life with my engineering and science uh, exposure, And I dug into God's word a little bit and read the Genesis story, and I wasn't able to reconcile them really well. But that's okay, because I was somewhat of a spiritual infant, so I just created my own creation story, and I just convinced myself of how God can have created everything, and there's still sort of an evolutionary-type origin to the universe, and it all comes together, and so it was Bob's story of creation, essentially. And then I met Alicia, and Alicia came from a perspective of reading the Bible pretty literally, and so that challenged me to think, now what do I really believe? So I started coming to church here, and I was fortunate to get teaching from John Sanders, and then later on even from Dean, And I was encouraged to really start to dig into his word. And I thought I would go at it scientifically, sort of like Dave was saying, and try and go, how do I reconcile the creation story with God and the science story that we know? And I ultimately concluded, I can't do it. But the beauty of it was that as I studied God's word more and more, it became less and less important for me to do that because I started realizing how great and grand God was and how his whole word revealed him and showed me how much he loves me and what's important in my life. And I started to recognize I'm a child of his and a child compared to him, and it's probably not likely that I'm going to understand how he created the universe and how he chose to write it down. So, And it's neat to be in the science community and see scientists today as they discover more and more about the universe. I believe it reconciles more and more with a God-created universe. And so now I'm at the point where, you know, whether those early stories in Genesis are stories or intended to be literal scientific accounts, it's not so important to me because the psalmist says that God created everything and his glory is revealed in all his creation, and I'm just completely convinced of that. And I just think of now that I know him and that he encourages me to be out there sharing his love and even talking through the challenges of some of these things that I'm forced to face, but ultimately realizing what's really important.
Thanks, Bob. Good stuff. So I encourage you. Yes. Yeah, I encourage you as you want to continue to, to pursue that, to talk to guys like Bob. We have such a great resource here of people in our church who, who have studied this and have that scientific background. So first point is in the beginning, God. But second point, in the beginning with God was love. Love. See, the bombshell of Christianity, the thing that makes Christianity unique from every other religion, is that God exists in community. That is his fundamental nature. And we see strong hints of this in Genesis. The first three verses of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God, God created. But then in verse 2, it said, now the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in verse 3, God, it says, God said, let there be light. So you have God, God's Spirit, and God's Word in the first three verses. So you get this sense that there's different aspects of God. And then in verse, Genesis verse 1, 27, God says, let us make man in our image. I don't think God's talking to the angels. Hey, hey guys, like Gabriel, help me out here. I need some help to make man. I think he's talking to himself. Let us Make man in our image. And then in Genesis 2.24, we didn't read this, but it's about the first marriage, the first wedding between Adam and Eve. And God says, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the word for flesh there is a really interesting word. It's a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word ekid. And it means one composite unity of multiple things. In this case, multiple persons. So you have Adam as a person, you have Eve as a person, and they're coming together and they don't lose their personhood. He's still a person, she's still a person, but somehow, even though they're individuals, they become one thing, one echid. Now that's important because there's another verse, very important verse that has that in it. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the word that goes untranslated there is one echid, one composite unity of multiple persons. And that becomes explicit in the New Testament. John 1, 1 through 4 says the word Jesus is being referred to there. The word Jesus was with God and the word was God. The word was with God from the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, if something was made by, if something was made it was made by Jesus. If it was created, it was created by him. There's two categories. Stay with me here. This is important. Two categories. All, in everything that exists, there's only two categories. There's created things, made things over here, and there's unmade things, uncreated things over here. And John is saying, if it's a created thing, then it was created by the word, by Jesus. That's important because sometimes people like Jehovah's Witnesses will come up to you and they'll say, hey, Jesus, well, he's cool, but he's actually Michael the archangel and he was made by God. And you're like, well, okay, but how does that fit with John 1 verse 3? Because that says if it's a made thing, if it's a created thing, it was created by him. But if he's a created thing, then how did he create himself? Because if, if something's made, it was made by him. And Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3 says that. Now here's how this relates to love. Why is it important that God is tripersonal? Why is it important that there is more than one person in the Trinity? Because love is a relationship between persons. If you have a person all by herself, existing with nothing else, she cannot love. 
She may have nice feelings. She may, may be a kind person, a compassionate person, a merciful person. But she cannot love if she doesn't have another being towards whom she can direct those feelings and work for its good. At best, we might say that, that by herself, she has the potential to love, but that's all. And so if God was just one person who existed all by himself before creation, God could not love before creation. He was not loving because there was no one to love. And so on that view, if you want to hold that view, then God always had power and he always had intelligence, but he did not always love because he was not always in relationship. And thus, on that view, either God creates because he's lonely or he creates, but it has no relationship to his love because he doesn't love. It was, love was irrelevant. It didn't factor into his decision to create. Now, if God created because he's lonely, that means he's incomplete. He has a deficiency. He, his love for you is not unconditional. He creates you because you're going to meet a need in him. And so he's like, please love me. Please, I have this hole in my heart. Or if you want to say, no, 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 that can't be true. If he's just one person, then love was irrelevant to God. It's not an essential part of his nature. It was a later add-on, a later addition after he created and those two options are really how most people view love in our world. Most people view love either as a de deficit in themselves that needs to be filled. And so they say, I have this hole in my heart. I need love. Hey, you need love. Let's trade. Okay, you love me. I'll love you. Let's work out a deal here. And as long as we're trading nicely, everything's fine. But there's no unconditional love. It's all about trading. Or other people say, no, 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 no. Love, love. It's, it's an add-on in life, okay? It's nice to have if possible, if you can find time for it, but it's not necessary. It's not essential. Power, intelligence, pleasure, those are what really matter in life. Those are intrinsic to life, not love. And that's why our view of God is so important, because it affects how we view reality. What is absolutely real, and it affects how we live. Christianity says that God did not create because he was lonely, nor was love an add-on that came later for him. Instead, Christianity says that because God is tri-personal, he has always had loving relationships. So God is one being, one thing, one echid, with three centers of self-consciousness, three persons who exist within this one being, one thing. And so there's not a contradiction. Sometimes people are like, oh, the Trinity is a contradiction. It's not. One thing, three persons. One composite unity, but three persons who are in unity. And so these three persons have always loved each other. Jesus said that they glorify each other. And the, the Greek word for glorify means to honor, to bow down, and to serve another person. And Jesus gives us a little peek, kind of behind the scenes uh, peek at what this looked like before God created the world in John 17, 24. He's, he's praying and he says, Father, he's, he, right before he goes to the cross, he says, Father, I want my disciples, I want them to be with me and to see the glory I had with you, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, in God's timeless moment, the Trinity was loving and glorifying each other. And I know that's deep stuff, but it's not idle speculation because it means that love is at the very heart of reality. The very essence of reality is to put the needs of others above your own and to love them sacrificially. 
It's the true nature of self to be abdicated, to get down off the throne of your life and to get down and wash someone else's feet and honor them and love them and serve them sacrificially above yourself. That's ultimate reality. That was happening before the world began. In God's timeless moment, that's what was going on. The Trinity was loving each other and glorifying each other. And so, if you are always seeking power and knowledge and pleasure rather than love, you are out of step with reality. You do not know God. And if you're always putting your career or your reputation or your personal pleasure ahead of sacrificially loving others and being in community, you will eventually be broken against the rocks of reality. You're not built for that kind of life. The world is not made that way. The world is built on love. You cannot divorce power and intelligence and pleasure from love and still be happy. They're meant to go together. So in the beginning, there was God and there was love. And finally, there's purpose. And I'm not going to say a lot about this because Dean is going to really dive into this next week. But let me just say a few words. Verse 26 through 28 of Genesis. Genesis 1, it says, Humans are made in the image of God to be his stewards, to rule and to subdue the earth. And there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot that goes into being a steward, to ruling over the earth, to subduing the earth. But here's one thing I want to draw out. That means that there's work to be done. There's work to be done. And some of you are like, wait a minute, work to be done? I thought work came from the fall. No, futility comes from sin and and interpersonal conflict and suffering, that comes through sin. But work was part of the original creation. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I thought they were in paradise. What what kind of work could there be to do? Well, it, it was a good environment, absolutely, but it was not a cruise ship. People weren't just like sitting around on, on, on hammocks and angels are dropping you know, grapes into their mouth. There, there was work to be done. God created an a, a awesome world, but he created humans then to continue to create within that world. We were made to be happy, but he has work for us to do. And so God's creation is good, but not complete. I know that may sound a little weird to some of you. It's good, but it's not complete because he intended for us to continue to create, to continue his creative work by by subduing the chaotic parts and by bringing goodness and harmony and beauty to the world. That's what we're made for. That's what our lives are made for. And so you're not just made here just kind of because God was like, ah, I want a little pet and and I want to keep my little pet happy because that's not what he made you for. He made you, he loves you, he wants to have a relationship with you, and he wants you then to continue his creative work, continue writing the story. The cool thing is God is the author of the story, but then he lets us write a part, a little part into his good story. And Dean is going to give us some more specifics of that next week, what that really means, what it involves, and why it's important for each of us, why we each have a specific calling, a specific purpose on our lives from God. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for our time together today, Lord. I know it, there's a lot of moving parts, but Father, I just pray that the things that were most important, Lord, the truths that were, that were truly essential, I pray that they would just sink down into our hearts, Lord. If there was stuff that was not significant, I pray that it would just blow away like chaff, but I pray that the things that were significant that you want to speak to us today would really sink down into us, that we would believe truly that there is a great, powerful God who made everything, and that we would believe that this God exists in community, a community of love, that love is part of ultimate reality. It's not an add-on, it's not an illusion, but it's real, and it's absolute, and that we would know we were created with a purpose. We have significance. We have things to do. 
We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us and your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, stand with me for the benediction. You were made to know God, who is ultimate reality, who is the source of all things. And you were made to be loved by God and to respond to that love by loving God and loving his creatures. And you were made to bring God glory by continuing his creative work and adding goodness and love and beauty to the world that he has made. So go this week and in the power of God's spirit, relying on his, on his energy, go out and continue to do those things. Seek God, love others, and bring goodness, beauty, and harmony to the world, to the world in the power of Jesus' name.